what I would like us to do in the next hour is to take a look at several biblical passages that describe the cosmic conflict and um, that speak about God's solution on a cosmic level of the problem of sin, of the problem of evil. And I'm going to be referring to several biblical texts, uh, so uh, you might want to write them down. Let's begin by going to the book of Job, chapter 38, 38 and verses 1 through 7. Job 38 and verses 1 through 7. Actually, let's let's, uh, read beginning at verse 4. Here God is uh, asking Job, because Job has talked for about 37 chapters, actually 35 chapters. So God is going to say, no, it's my turn. And God asks him a series of questions. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? What's being described in these verses? Creation, yes. Now I want you to notice that at creation there were two groups. When God created this world, and they did something when God created this world. It says, when the morning stars sang together. Who are the morning stars? The angels, yes. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So you have two groups. You have the stars, the morning stars, and you have the sons of God. The morning stars are angels. The Bible makes it very clear that stars represent angels. But the sons of God are really the representatives of the worlds that never sinned. In other words, you have in heaven two categories of beings, of course, other than the Trinity. You have the angels, the angelic host, and you have the inhabitants of the worlds, of the unfallen worlds. Now, go with me back to Job chapter 1. Job 1. And by the way, if you want... uh, I'm not going to deal extensively with the sons of God, with the meaning of the sons of God. You'll have to accept some of the things by faith, but if you're interested in studying this more, um, I have a presentation that I did on DVD. Um, The title is God's Heavenly Council, where I deal with the biblical concept of the 24 elders. I believe the 24 elders are the, uh, the sons of God. In other words, they're the representatives of the worlds that never sinned. It's, it's called God's Heavenly Council. And you might want to see another one right before that one. It's called the, uh, the Return of the War Hero. Is really the, the foundation for the one of the 24 elders, uh, which is God's Heavenly Council. Uh, but notice uh, Job chapter 1 and verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God... Are these the same sons of God that we read about in chapter 38? Sure. When the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Do they live in the presence of the Lord? No, No, because the Bible says that they came to present themselves before the Lord. So they must not live there. 
And Satan also came among them. So who comes among the sons of God? Satan. Does he claim to belong to that group? Why would he come among them if he doesn't claim a right to belong to them? Does he claim to have a right to be among them? Of course, he comes among them, it says. Now where did he come from? Verse 7. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you not considered my servant Job? So where did the devil come from? From the earth, from a planet. And he comes among the sons of God. So where must the other sons of God have come from? They must have come from other planets. Now why would the devil go representing planet earth? Who should have been there? Adam should have been there. Because Luke chapter 3 says that, that, that Adam was the son of God. He's called that in Luke chapter 3. Adam is called the son of God. By the way, was Adam the son of God in a special sense? Differently than us? Sure, because he was the son of God by creation. We are sons of God by procreation. So Adam is unique. He's the only one who could really be called the son of God. We are technically grandchildren and great-grandchildren of God. Because we descend, we, we descend by procreation from Adam and Eve. Adam was created by God. He is the son of God. But when Adam allowed himself to be overcome by Satan, Satan took his throne. And Satan now became the representative of this world. That's why Jesus, when he was about to die, he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the prince or the ruler of this world be cast out. See, at the cross, the devil is knocked off the throne and Jesus sits on the throne until all of the enemies of God are placed under his feet. And then he's going to return the throne to Adam, who lost it originally. Now let's go to chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2. Again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Let me ask you, if they come again to present themselves before the Lord, must they have left after the first meeting? I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. If they came, they must have gone back to where they came from after the first meeting. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And so the Lord asked Satan, where are you from? He says, oh, I come from supervising my world, planet Earth. And then I want you to notice, we're, we're going to deal with this tomorrow afternoon in the last hour that we have our seminar together. I'm going to take a look with you at the book of Job. How many of you have seen the, the DVD presentation that I have on the book of Job? Anybody seen that one? Oh, good. Because I'm going to present tomorrow a study, the last hour on the book of Job. That's going to bring everything that we've studied together. But, and one of the fun, fundamental misunderstandings of this book is the idea that the devil is accusing Job. The devil's not accusing Job. He's accusing God. Notice Job chapter 1, once again, chapter 1 and verse 9. Because God says, to, God says to the devil, haven't you seen my servant Job? He lives in your territory and yet he's my servant. He's a blameless man, he's upright, 
separated from evil. Great guy. And then the devil says this to God in verse 9. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? That is the key question of the book. In other words, Job serves you for mercenary motives. He serves you because of the loaves and the fishes. He serves you because you're good to him. It's not love. Self-interest. But then the devil says, but if you took everything that leads him to serve you away from him, he would curse you to your face. Now is God putting himself on the line? Let me ask you, by the decisions that Job makes, is he making God look good or look bad? You know, we would be much more careful in the way we act when we realize that what we do makes God look bad or good. What if Job had apostatized? Have you ever thought of that possibility? What if Job had cursed God to his face? Who would have been proved right? Satan would have been proved right and God would have looked like the bad guy. See, he did. He does serve God for the loaves and the fishes. It's been proven. But when the story ends, Job is faithful to God to the very end. He asks a lot of questions we're going to notice, but he's faithful to God. By the way, this is taking place in the heavenly council. So does the conflict in this earth have anything to do with heaven? Absolutely. All heaven is involved. Do you know that God rules this world through a heavenly council? You know, God could do everything himself. But God has a Republican style of government. I didn't, I'm not talking about the Republican Party. <laughs> I'm talking about a republic. A representative style of government. Each world has a representative that comes to the heavenly council. And they deliberate and they make decisions up there concerning the earth. Heaven is involved. And this is one of those meetings. The, the, the subject of conversation is Job. And the heavenly council, the representatives of the worlds, the angels are all gathered there. And there's this discussion between God and the devil. And, and God says, Job serves me because he loves me. The devil says, no, he doesn't. He serves you because of what you give him. God says, well, go then take everything he has, except don't take his life. And, and you'll see if I'm right or not, whether he serves me just purely out of love. So the devil say, goes out, he takes away everything, he afflicts Job. He makes him lose his friends, lose the support of his wife. Later on in the book it says that his friends spit in his face. And he cries out to God and even God doesn't listen. Even God appears to have forsaken him. And yet Job says, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Who was proved right at the end of the story? God came out smelling like roses. And the devil was proven wrong. Do you think it would have been a lot easier for Job if he had understood what was happening? See, we have no excuse because we have his story. He had no scripture. And he, yet he was faithful to God. So it's an incredibly important book. By the way, you all know the story in Second Chronicles chapter 18. You know, 
What we see in this world is not really the history. There's a history behind history. History is a conspiracy. Wait a minute. You believe in all these conspiracy theories? theories? Yes. Everything we see in this world is a conspiracy. Everything that is taking place in the world is really a repercussion of things that are happening in the invisible world. Let me give you some biblical examples. When Jesus was born, the Bible tells us that Herod had all the male children, two years and younger, killed. Interesting. If you'd read the newspaper the day after, the Bethlehem newspaper, by the way, Bethlehem was just a little town, probably didn't have a newspaper. But if, it, but if they did have a newspaper, what would the headline have said? Herod slays all the male children. But you see, when you go to Revelation 12, the curtain is open and you see behind the scenes. The dragon stood next to the woman to devour her child as soon as he was born. That's history behind history. Those of you who have seen, some of you might have seen the Genesis series, Cracking the Genesis Code. It's looking at Genesis from the perspective of the conflict that's going on in the invisible world. Every story in the Old Testament has to be seen from this perspective. That what happens in the invisible world with the heavenly beings, loyal angels and wicked angels fighting. Ellen White says that the battles are as real as some of the battles that are fought on planet Earth. She gives the impression that there's hand-to-hand combat between loyal angels and disobedient angels. And it all impacts the invisible world is impacting this world. You know, you have, for example, the story of Ruth. What a magnificent little, little book that book of Ruth is. I have a whole presentation in the Genesis series on how Ruth fits in with the thesis of Genesis 3, verse 15. You see this story, you know, that Naomi and her husband, they, they go to Moab because there's this terrible drought. So they have to leave Judah and they go to Moab. You know, who causes droughts? Is it God? No, it's the devil who causes droughts. God doesn't, God removed his hand, but he allows the devil to work. So, so this drought, they go over there. By the way, um, Naomi's husband was of the tribe of Judah. Kings came from Judah. The devil must have seen something in this family. So they go over there, and lo and behold, Abimelech and his two sons die over there. So the devil says, no problem. There's not going to be any Messiah coming from this family. But then they come back to Judah. Naomi does. And with her she brings Ruth, who, who was a Moabitess. Huh. And by the way, she becomes an Israelite. You say, how, how could God have said that you're not supposed to marry people from other nations? Well, the fact is, she became an Israelite because she said, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. She incorporated herself into Israel. So they come back and Ruth ends up, you know, to make a long story short, she ends up in the fields of uh, Boaz. And Ruth gets married to Boaz. And the book of Ruth ends with a genealogy. Who ends a love story with a genealogy? 
The love story ends with they lived happily ever after. But here you have the, this anti-climax, this genealogy at the end of Ruth. Well, it just so happens that it's the genealogy that ends with David. And if you go to Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of David takes you all the way to Christ. God transplanted that family to Moab to bring Ruth back so that Ruth would marry Boaz and from Ruth and Boaz would eventually come the Messiah into the world. So what the devil intended for evil, God produced good. Yeah, every event on earth is an impact of what happens in the invisible world. We need to understand that the history, the real history isn't what we see, the real history is what we can't see. You know, you have the story in 1 Chronicles chapter 18 where Ahab wanted to go to battle. Ahab was a bad king, Jehoshaphat was a good king. Jehoshaphat was the king of, the, of Judah, the two tribes of, of the south. Ahab was the, the king of uh, Israel, the ten, ten kingdoms of the south, or the ten, ten tribes of the south. They had a family reunion in Samaria. And so uh, Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, hey, now that we're together, you know, we could go against our common enemy, the Syrians, and destroy them, you know, because they're a menace. And so Jehoshaphat says, well, you know, shouldn't we consult the Lord? Well, yeah. Do you have any prophets? Yeah, 400 of them. <laughs> So they come, and Ahab says, you know, Jehoshaphat and I want to go with our armies to fight the Syrians. Do you think it's a good idea? Oh, of course it is. You go to battle, you're going to win the victory. But Jehoshaphat was a good, he wasn't too convinced. He says, now don't you have a prophet of the Lord around? <laughs> and he says, yeah, I got him. He's in the, he's in the dungeon. Because every time I ask him to give me a prophecy, he prophesies evil. And Jehoshaphat says, that's the Lord's prophet. <laughs> so the Lord's prophet comes, and uh, Ahab says the same thing, you know, Jehoshaphat and I want to go and fight the Syrians. Should we do it? And Micaiah, who is the prophet, suddenly seems to be disconnected with the moment. You know, he speaks about a scene that's taking place in heaven. He says, how the Lord's sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven surrounding the throne. And the Lord said, who will go and try to persuade Ahab to go to battle so that he gets killed? It says that one person, one being in the heavenly council said one thing and another said another thing. Nobody wanted to do it. And it says there that suddenly a spirit came and presented himself before the Lord. And he said, I'll do it. And the Lord says, how will you do it? He says, I'll be in a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. Who was that spirit? Was it a loyal angel of God? No. no, because God does not use lying to accomplish his purposes. That spirit was the devil. He was allowed to go to heaven, to the heavenly councils, before Jesus died on the cross. He can't go anymore representing this world, because Jesus now represents his world. So are you understanding that what happens on earth is really a repercussion of movements that take place in the invisible world? Now, go with me to 1 Corinthians 4. Let's, let's pursue this a little bit more. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 9.
Here the Apostle Paul is speaking about the prospect of martyrdom. And he says, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle. Better translation would be the theater. What have the apostles been made? It's a theatrical presentation is the word that's being referred to. Who are they a theater or who are they a spectacle to? To the world? Both to what? To angels and to men. So were the apostles a spectacle only to human beings? No, they were a spectacle also to what? Angels. In other words, angels were watching this dramatic presentation. This theatrical presentation of the history of planet Earth. Particularly referring to the apostles who were condemned to death. Go with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Verses 19 and 20. Do you think that God only has to reconcile the earth with himself? Or does God have to reconcile the whole universe with himself? Let me ask you, were there doubts in the minds even of the loyal angels after sin came in? Even the mind, in the minds of the loyal angels, was there some confusion? Yes. They said, huh. What he says appears to be right. Hmm. Who knows? Is God really like that? There were doubts in the minds of the heavenly intelligences. So, the plan of salvation on this earth, does it clear up those doubts? Yes. It totally clears up all of the questions that are in the minds of the heavenly beings. In other words, it not only reconciles the earth with God, but it also reconciles heaven with God. Notice Colossians chapter 1 and verses 19 and 20. For it pleased the Father that in Him, that in Him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. And by Him, that is by Jesus, to reconcile all things to Himself by Him. What is done by Jesus? Reconcile all things to whom? To God. And now notice, whether things on earth or things where? In heaven. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Does, does God have to reconcile heaven with himself as well? That's what it says. That's what the text says. Now, go with me to Ephesians 1 verse 10. See, there's, there are very clear indications interspersed all through scripture that this controversy is far broader than just this little world. And this little world, what God does in this world, is really a way in which the heavenly beings can see a revelation of God's character. How God resolves a sin problem solves the questions that all of the beings of the universe have. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, that is, when Jesus actually came to this earth, he might gather together in one, 
may gather together what? In one that is in unity. All things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in Him. Are you catching what that text is saying? Once again, there's the idea of uniting, bringing together what is where? In heaven and on earth. Notice Ephesians 3, 9 through 11. Ephesians 3, verses 9 through 11. Actually, let's begin at verse 8. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ... And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now, now this is the important verse, that now the manifold wisdom of God, what is it that's going to be made known? The manifold wisdom of God might be made known, notice this, by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Is the church, according to this, making known the manifold wisdom of God before the heavenly universe? Absolutely. Verse 11, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now let's read a couple of statements from this material that you have. We'll go to page 5. The second full quotation. See, Ellen White caught these hints from Scripture. In what sense must heaven be reconciled with Christ as well as earth? We usually think of, you know, the earth has to be reconciled uh, with God through Christ. But heaven must be reconciled with God through Christ as well. Because there are questions, there are doubts that need to be cleared up. Uh, This statement is from Bible Training School, a little pamphlet, December 1, 1907. It's an Ellen White quotation. Not only man, but angels will ascribe honor and glory to the Redeemer, for even they are secure only through the sufferings of the Son of God. What is this saying? Not only man, but what? But angels are secure only through the sufferings of the Son of God. It is through the efficacy of the cross that the inhabitants of the fallen worlds have been guarded from apostasy. Did you catch that? Who is guarded from apostasy by what Jesus did? Us? Well, that too. But Ellen White says the unfallen worlds because of what Jesus did on the cross and we're going to study about the cross a little bit later on have been guarded from apostasy. It is this 
that has effectually unveiled the deceptions of Satan and refuted his claims. What has refuted the claims of Satan and his deceptions? The cross of Jesus. We have to understand the cross in the light of the law of God. Because Jesus is paying the penalty of the law. Is it proven that the wages of, of sin is death at the cross of Calvary? In other words, the cross answers, when, when they see what happened at the cross, it totally disconnects them from any sympathy with Satan. You'll find some statements in this material where Ellen White says that when, when the heavenly beings saw what the devil did to Christ at the cross, any little bit of sympathy that they still had with him was removed. They no longer had any sympathy whatsoever for him. Because they saw that, the, by the way, did the cross prove that the law of God is still binding? Yes. Sure, because if Jesus had to law to die to uphold the law, it means that he didn't nail the law to the cross. But they don't need the salvation. They no, no, no. It's not that that gives them allegiance to the cross. It's just but it secures them from future apostasy, is what the spirit of prophecy is saying. In other words... They're, they're never going to experiment with apostasy with the way the devil did when they see the fruits and the consequences of sin, which are seen primarily at the cross. She continues saying, not only those that are washed by the blood of Christ, but also the holy angels are drawn to him by his crowning act of giving his life for the sins of the world. God's dealing with the rebellion of Satan is justified before the universe. The justice and mercy of God are fully vindicated. Let me, let me amplify that point a little bit. You know, when man sinned, God was between a rock and a hard place. Because God said, if you sin, you will die. So the devil says, man sinned, He's got to die. But then he says, how can a God of love destroy his creatures? Are you with me? In other words, Satan is presenting a conflict between the mercy and justice of God. Justice demands that they be destroyed. Mercy demands that they be forgiven. Now how are you going to solve that? The cross solves it. Because God shows his mercy in that Jesus dies so that man doesn't have to die. And justice is satisfied because Jesus suffers the penalty that we should suffer. So that's why at the cross, justice and mercy kiss each other. See, the cross shows the mercy and justice of God. Mercy because we don't have to suffer the penalty. Justice because Jesus suffered it. Are you with me? So is God vindicated at the cross? He most certainly is. So at the middle of the statement, she says, The justice and mercy of God are fully vindicated, so that through all eternity, rebellion will never again arise. Isn't that good news? Amen. 
Such is the import of his own words when for the last time teaching in the temple he said, looking forward to his approaching sacrifice, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Now notice this comment. Will draw all unto me. Not only earth, but what? But heaven. For of him the whole family and heaven in heaven and earth is named. And then let's go to one further statement. This one is found on page 11 at the bottom of the page. The death of Christ upon the cross made the sure made sure the destruction of him who has the power of death who was the originator of sin. When Satan is destroyed, there will be none to tempt to evil. The atonement will never need to be repeated. And there will be no danger of another rebellion in the universe of God. So was this whole mess worth it? You know, we live in a society where people want instant gratification. I want it and I want it now. That's why we have our credit cards maxed out. There's no tomorrow. But when God resolves the sin problem, He doesn't take hasty measures to solve it quickly. Salvation is a process. Slow, certain. God is not going to leave any loose ends when all this mess is finished. She continues saying, That which alone can effectually restrain from sin in this world of darkness will prevent sin in heaven. The significance of the death of Christ will be seen by saints and angels. Fallen men could not have a home in the paradise of God without the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Shall we not then exalt the cross of Christ? The angels ascribe honor and glory to Christ for even they are not secure except by looking to the sufferings of the Son of God. It is through the efficacy of the cross that the angels of heaven are guarded from apostasy. Then you can read the rest of the statement. This is what uh, is referred to in the verses that we've noticed. In uh, 1 Corinthians 4.9, Colossians 1, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3. Now go with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. <clears throat> Have you ever read it, uh, for example, Luke 15 verse 7, where it says that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents than over 100 who need no repentance? So let me ask you, when decisions are made on earth, does that impact heaven? Do you know that Ellen White says that sometimes when we're singing in the worship service, the angels pick up, pick up the song and sing along with us? That's an awesome thought. There's a lot of songs these days that are sung in Adventist churches that the angels won't sing. Amen. But they will sing the hymns, the great hymns. You know, we have a hymnal full of hymns, beautiful hymns, with profound, significant words, where each stanza builds upon the previous stanza. 
songs that are seeped in scripture. You read the song, you read the hymns, they, they have scriptural content, abundance of scriptural content. And uh, it's an awesome thought that, you know, when a sinner repents, all heaven rejoices. When we sing, heaven sings. When Jesus died on the cross, no harps were played. See, there's a close connection between heaven and earth. Notice John chapter 12 and verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be what? Cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what what? By what death he would die. So how was the devil going to be cast out as the ruler of this world? By the what? By the death of Christ. Yes. Because Jesus, because the serpent represents the represents Satan and the power of evil, and Jesus became sin in our place. He who knew no sin became sin. Amen. In other words, our sins were imputed to him. And we'll discuss this this afternoon when we deal with the sanctuary. Because the sanctuary, there are four key places in the sanctuary where God resolves the sin problem. See, we're dealing mostly now with trying to gain a cosmic view of the controversy. That's the purpose this morning, is to see that the controversy involves the whole universe. And what the issues in the controversy are. This afternoon we're going to talk about the four key places of the sanctuary and how God solves this problem. The encampment, the court, the holy place, and the most holy place. There's where Jesus solves, that's where Jesus takes the devil to court. In the sanctuary. Uh, now notice Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. This is the reaction of heaven when the ruler of this world is cast out. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been what? Cast out. So was there a song in heaven when the devil was cast out at the cross? Oh yes. And therefore, notice verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Did you catch that, by the way? Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Plural. Not heaven, where God is. That's where the angels live. But here it speaks about those who dwell in them, in the heavens. It's so, notice it says, Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth. You see the contrast there? Rejoice! Woe! Heaven can rejoice because that pest is gone. Amen. <laughs> but earth, woe! Because the devil has descended upon you because he knows his time is short. He's a wounded lion. He's been, he's been clubbed on the head. And he knows that his time is what? He knows that his time is short. In other words, his days are numbered because Jesus 
gave him the death blow on the head. Now, go with me. So is there a connection here between heaven and earth? Do earthly events cause a heavenly reaction? Absolutely. There is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. When Jesus conquers on the cross, there's this song in heaven. Now go with me to Psalm 51. I want to show you something very interesting here. Psalm 51. And verse 4. This is the psalm of David's penitence after he committed his sin of murder and adultery. I'm just going to read verse 4. It says, Against you, you only, have I sinned. Is uh, David recognizing and confessing his sin? He most certainly is. And done this evil in your sight. Now notice this, this is a key point. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Now what does that mean? In 1 John chapter 1, let's go there for a minute. Hold your place there in Psalm 51 because we're going to come back to it. John, 1 John 1. And verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now let's go to verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. What happens when we say that we don't say that we have sinned? We make God a liar. Now we can understand Psalm 51 verse 4, the last part a little bit better. It says that you, so when David confesses his sin, God is being found just when he speaks and blameless when he judges. Are you with me? But now I want you to notice something very interesting. This verse is quoted in the New Testament. Go with me to... Romans 3 and verse 4. And there's a, there's a difference. A very important difference. Romans chapter 3 and verse 4. You tell me if you can catch the difference between the Old Testament text and the New Testament quotation. It says there in Romans chapter 3 and verse 4. Certainly not indeed. Let God be true, but every man a what? A liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. In the psalm it says, when you judge. Here it says, when what? When you are judged. So is God going to be judged? I'd like to share with you that that text that we have in the first angel's message, where it says, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, 
can be understood in two different ways. It can refer to the hour in which God is going to judge, but it can also refer to the hour in which God is going to be judged. The hour of His judgment is come. Is that talking about the hour of His judgment, that He's doing the judging, or the hour of His judgment means that now He's going to be judged? The fact is, folks, that in the process of judging, God is being judged. Let me ask you, does God need to keep records? God says, well, you better write this down, I might forget it. Does God know everything? Does He have a photographic memory? Does He know every sin that we have ever committed? Does He know whether we confessed it, whether we repented of it? Of course He does. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows everything. So why does He keep records? The Bible says that he has books. Why does he keep books? He keeps them for the good of the universe. By the way, it's the heavenly universe that sees what's in the books before the second coming of Jesus. We don't see it. See, God, the reason why God keeps records is not because of him, but because of other beings who don't know everything. So everything is kept in God's heavenly records because God wants to prove beyond any doubt that he has been just and merciful in the way that he has dealt with every single case in the great controversy between good and evil. You see, the devil accuses God of of, uh, being a respecter of persons. From the very beginning, didn't the devil say that? Oh yeah, God has favorites. Look, he invites his son to consult him about the creation of man. Then he he leaves all of us out. So God has favorites. And that's his argument. You know, how can some, some sinners be saved and other sinners be condemned? In fact, that's what took place when Moses was going to be resurrected. In Jude 9, as you find Michael the archangel came. By the way, this is Jesus. He came to resurrect Moses. They were fighting over the body of Moses. Don't think that, that they were fighting over a dead corpse. Michael, who comes with the voice of the archangel, incidentally, in 1 Thessalonians 4, had come to resurrect Moses. And the devil says, what do you mean you're going to take Moses from me? He sinned. He's mine. And Jesus says, yeah, well, but he repented from his sin. He accepted my sacrifice. The devil says, what sacrifice? You haven't died yet. Jesus says, but I'm going to. And Moses accepted the promise of my sacrifice. So I'm going to take him home. And later on it will be proven that I was right in bringing him home. How can God take somebody to heaven like Saul of Tarsus? The blood of many, many people is on the hands of Saul, was on the hands of Saul of Tarsus. By the way, that encounter, that encounter between Saul of Tarsus and Stephen is going to be out of sight. It's worth going there just to see that. <laughs> Can you imagine Saul walking down the street of the New Jerusalem and, 
and Stephen coming from the other direction and, and uh, suddenly Stephen rubs his eyes. Saul? No, can't be. Yeah, because Stephen, the last thing he saw was Saul of Tarsus encouraging the people to throw the stones at him. And so Stephen's going, you were saved too? A murderer? A blasphemer against God? Because as he blasphemed, he says, I caused people to blaspheme against God. But when the records are open, it will be proven that Saul of Tarsus, the great apostle Paul, repented and confessed his sins and placed them in the sanctuary through the blood. And that blood will cleanse the record of sin from the sanctuary. We'll deal with that this afternoon. See, the reason why Christianity, Christendom does not understand the plan of salvation is because they don't understand the sanctuary. They don't follow Jesus step by step through the sanctuary. There you have a revelation of how God solves this cosmic mess that we're involved in. Correct. So that means that we should not look at the cross as a, a graphic, bloody mess because we're putting away of sin and that would constitute the repression. Yes. If, it, if it's the remission, the yeah, let, we'll, we'll discuss this this afternoon, but lest I forget, allow me to share this with you. You bring up a good point. Um, and that is that, you know, there are many in the church today. Uh, it started in the days when, this might not mean a lot to a lot of you, but Desmond Ford in uh, around 1980, you know, he said that the Day of Atonement took place at the cross. And uh, allow me to say that the sacrificial aspect of the Day of Atonement took place at the cross. This is the fundamental misunderstanding, is Jesus did not die again in 1844. His death on the cross is now, he's going to take his blood to cleanse the sanctuary, the blood that he shed 2,000 years before. In other words, the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement took place at the cross. But that doesn't mean that the cleansing of the sanctuary by that blood took place at the cross. Are you with me or not? And we'll discuss this issue. You know, uh, we're, we're going to follow the steps, you know, of Jesus through the sanctuary and see how Jesus resolves this, this sin problem, uh, this cosmic sin problem that we're involved in. Now, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12. 1 Peter 1 and verse 12. By the way, the message of the sanctuary is a wonderful message. The, the, the most holy place message is a beautiful, wonderful message for God's people. You'll have people out there tell you, well, you know, the Adventist church, they never believe that your sin is really forgiven because they say that after you, you repent and you confess it, it's written up there in the sanctuary. Listen, folks, our greatest assurance of salvation is to have our sin in the sanctuary, covered by the blood. Because if it's not there, it's here. See, you don't have any, any reason to be concerned if your sin goes into the sanctuary through the blood. Because when your name comes up in the judgment, all the record of the sins are there, but next to the, the sin is written, forgiven by the blood. And so that blood, when it's shown that sin has been through the power of God, repented of and confessed and, and forsaken, 
then the blood that forgave the sin is the blood that will blot out the sin. See, the, the forgiving of sin and blotting out of sin are two different things. In the daily service, it was the individual that was in view. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not talking there about cleansing the sanctuary. It's talking about cleansing us, forgiving us. But at the end of the year, the sanctuary was cleansed from the sins that had been forgiven. Listen, it's forgiven sins that are in the sanctuary. So what are you worried about? You have to, be, you have to worry about it if you haven't put them in there. That's where you really have to be worried. So make sure you put them in there through the blood of Jesus. 1 Peter 1, verse 12. Catch a little glimpse of heaven. It says here, speaking about the prophets of the Old Testament who were looking forward to the coming of Christ, it says, to them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels desire to look into. Isn't that beautiful? So the things that the prophets predicted, Peter is saying, they took place, they're before us now, and angels desire to look into and understand these things. And they'll never be able to fully understand. Because they haven't been redeemed in the same sense that we've been, that we will have been redeemed. Now let's go to Psalm 89. So time is almost up. Psalm 89 and verses 5 through 7. Psalm 89, verses 5 through 7. Are you catching the view that this is more than an earthly controversy? That heaven is involved, they want to see what's going on, they're watching. That it's the exoneration of God that's involved. The universe is made secure by what they're seeing happen on this earth. Is that much broader than what most Christians see as the plan of salvation? See, it's, the center is the great controversy. You know, people say, well, Ellen White, she was a plagiarist. Because she has a lot of things, a lot of quotations in the book, The Great Controversy, from historians and from uh, pioneers. You know, so she was a plagiarist. Listen, Ellen White takes the material, some material from other sources for great controversy, but she places it in a totally different framework. It's in the framework of the great controversy between good and evil. In that sense, her book is unique. You see, Ellen White's book, The Great Controversy, is not a history, it is a philosophy of history. God allows her to go behind the scenes, to see what's happening behind the scenes, where the, the normal eye cannot see. You see, historians can only see what's before their eyes. But Ellen White sees the history behind history in The Great Controversy. Let me give you an example. For example, all the natural disasters that are taking place in the world. More and more. More intense all the time. You know, all a historian can do is give you the statistics. So many people died in Katrina, and you know, it was a terrible event, and the newscasters can show, give you pictures of everything that happened. You say, well, things are pretty bad, you know, it's global warming. 
But when you go to Great Controversy, 589 and 90, Ellen White says that the devil has control of the elements. And he causes earthquakes, and he causes hurricanes, and he causes uh, terrible conflagrations, that's wars, and things like this. And then she explains that the reason why the devil causes these things, allowed by God, is because ultimately the devil wants to blame God's people for the calamities that are taking place. That is the history behind history. That is the hidden agenda that the devil has. Uh, Great Controversy 589, 590. Okay, Psalm 89, and then I'll read one quotation from the Spirit of Prophecy, and then we'll break for lunch. Psalm 89 and verse 5. And the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the saints. For who who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. O Lord God of hosts, who who is mighty like you, O Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. So... Does the heaven also, do the heavens also praise God for what is happening on earth? You look at the context, it's talking about events that are transpiring on earth. The heavenly beings are overjoyed when they see God implementing His plan. At creation they sing, stars, and the sons of God shouted for joy. This world is not disconnected from the invisible world. All the universe is interested in what is happening here. Now allow me to read you one statement in closing. It's in your material. The very first statement on page one. But the plan of redemption had a yet broader and deeper purpose than the salvation of man. It was not for this alone that Christ came to the earth. It was not merely that the inhabitants of this little world might regard the law of God as it should be regarded. But it was to vindicate the character of God before the universe. To this result of his great sacrifice, its influence upon the intelligences of other worlds as well as upon man, The Savior looked forward when when just before his crucifixion he said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all unto me. The act of Christ in dying for the salvation of man would not only make heaven accessible to men, but before all the universe, it would justify God. I love that, justify God and his son in their dealing with the rebellion of Satan it would establish the perpetuity of the law of God and would reveal the nature and the result the results of sin so the Adventist view of salvation is much much broader 
than just Jesus coming to this world to save us from sin. And I'll end by telling you a very interesting story that we find in the Gospels about the lost sheep. Do you know that that parable has a much broader application than what we normally give it? Usually we say, you know, a, a, per, a member of the church goes astray and we're supposed to go and we're supposed to rescue it and bring it back to the church. Certainly the parable has that application, but that is not the greatest application of the parable. Really, the, Ellen White says that the 99 that are safe in the fold represent the worlds that never sinned. The one sheep that went astray represents this little world that went astray for, in the universe of God. The act of the shepherd leaving the fold, the 99, safe and secure, and going out to seek the lost sheep represents Jesus who left the security of heaven to come to this earth to rescue this little world, to bring it back to the fold of God. And have you ever noticed what happens when the shepherd brings the sheep back to the fold? When he calls his neighbors and he calls his friends. And he says, come, let's have a party, let's celebrate! For the sheep that was lost is found. There we have a prefiguring of when Jesus brings this little world back to the fold. The Bible says in the book of Revelation that every creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth will praise and honor God for what he has done. The whole universe will be called together to welcome God's people home and then the controversy will be ended let's pray Father in heaven we thank you for revealing these marvelous things to us as we've studied together Father we're, we're so thankful words are not sufficient to thank you for everything that you've done not only to rescue this world but to rescue the universe Father, I ask that you will help us to see that there's nothing in this world worth hanging on to. There's nothing in this world that is going to last forever. That the most important thing is forming a relationship with Jesus Christ so that we might be able to live eternally in your presence. What a privilege that will be. Father, I ask that no sin, no besetment in our lives might separate us from Jesus. We want to be there. We want this world of sin to come to an end. And we want to go home. We want to vindicate your character, Lord. We want you to make, make you look good. We want the devil to look bad. We want the whole world to see that you're a God of love. And that Satan is the creator of discord and sin and evil and every species of bad things that happens in this world. I ask, Lord, that you will always keep, help us to keep this heavenly focus. And we thank you, Father, for having been with us and for hearing our prayer. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll reconvene this afternoon at 2.30. And we have two sessions this afternoon. We'll go directly into studying the sanctuary, God's solution to the cosmic problem. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation, or if you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gyc.org.
gycweb.org. You can also find great witnessing media at www.audioverse.org and at www.hopevideo.com.